Wonderful job, kiddos. All right. Today's scripture reading is from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. Please stand for the reading of the word. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, and he went, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, to this now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I was just thinking as Alex uh, finished reading, uh, there are some Sundays I walk more quickly up to the pulpit than others. It's a hard text, right? <laughs> Make my way slowly. And... All right, it is a hard text that we're looking at this morning, uh, but it conveys a very simple truth, a truth that, that actually provides the basis for what Peter has just finished saying in verses 13 through 17, which we looked at Last week, back in verses 13 through 17, Peter had essentially said, listen, because of your faith in Jesus Christ, you are going to face unjust suffering. You're going to be persecuted. Back then, it was primarily uh, verbal assaults. It was marginalization. It was slander. Uh, but, but Peter was saying, listen, do, do not, don't re- return evil with evil when that happens. Don't return reviling with reviling when that happens happens. Rather, instead, bless. Rather, instead, set apart Christ as Lord in your heart so that even those who are abusing you can't help but ask, where does your hope come from? And so Peter said that in verses 13 through 17, and verse, verses 18 and following really grounds that. It gives the compelling motive for that, And that's indicated by that one little word at the beginning of verse 18, that word for, which is actually two words in the Greek, two words that mean because also. And so what Peter is saying is all these things are going to happen to you. Don't respond this way. Instead, respond this way, actually blessing instead of cursing. Because also, Christ himself suffered unjustly. In fact, Peter is saying Jesus is the supreme example of someone who suffered unjustly. But, Peter says in this passage, Christ was vindicated. By his resurrection, by his ascension, he was vindicated. He was seen to be victorious by powers far higher than Nero or any other Roman ruler, let alone, Peter would say to these people, your neighbors or your boss or whoever it may be that is slandering you. Jesus suffered unjustly and he was vindicated. When you suffer unjustly, Peter is saying to his readers, you too will be vindicated. So look to Christ. Maintain your faith in Christ. Let him be your hope. 
set him apart as hope as Lord in your hearts they needed to hear that because you know when you look back at verse 13 which we looked at last week now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good they could name names like I could tell you Peter who it is that is sought to harm me because I have done good they were suffering for their faith and they, they needed to be reminded of the simple truth that Christ too had suffered he was vindicated and they would be as well they needed to hear that we need to hear it we face unjust suffering as well as, as we've worked our way through first Peter we've seen ways in which our cultural moment is becoming to is beginning to mirror more and more their cultural moment the same kind of uh, marginalization and, and ostracization and, and slander and and false accusations that are being levied against Christians now are not all that different than they were back then and so if we're not suffering unjustly it may be because we're either so like the world that there's nothing that is distinctive about us or we're so insulated from the world that our distinctiveness can't be seen and, and so Peter has challenged us with both of those notions and called us to be as Jesus would say very much in the world but not of the world living distinctly Christian lives in our cultural moment and as we do we would hear with the Apostle Paul or hear what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.12, that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Every, everyone. So in a society that rejects God such as ours, godly people will be persecuted. How then shall we live? And again, as we saw last week, and not just last week, but all throughout the letter, that the answer to that question centers on our hope. Where have we placed our hope? Peter says we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and we're to live lives that are characterized by hope. And so here, Peter circles back once again in a way that's difficult to grasp, to be sure, but he's circling back once again to ground our hope in the finish, finished work of Jesus Christ. So it is a hard text. We're... It boggles my mind, but, but somehow Peter wrote this to people knowing that they would get it. And we're so far removed from that cultural context, we, we struggle to get it. So it is a hard text, but there is here a simple truth. And this, this is it. This is the simple truth that we're going to look at this morning. That the death of Jesus Christ was an unrepeatable sacrifice that achieved a victory which brings comfort to Christians when they suffer. Very simply, very plainly, that is what Peter is saying here in this passage. The death of Jesus Christ was an unrepeatable sacrifice that achieved a victory which brings comfort to Christians when they suffer. So we'll break out that sentence into three parts, but first let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray you'd be with us now as we look at this portion of your word. Lord, we know from your word that all scripture is useful and is suitable for building us up. We also know that some scriptures are more clear than others. And so we thank you for this portion of your word. We thank you for the way in which it, it calls us and challenges us to wrestle with your truth. But we also, Lord, thank you that, that the things that we need to see, the things that we need to know that are essential to our salvation are plain and on the surface. So we pray that you would allow 
your simple truth to sink deep into our hearts. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So first, the death of Christ was an unrepeatable sacrifice. And you see that in verse 18. We're going to take a look at that in just a second. For all I'm about to say in the next point about the victory of Christ, the victory that Jesus achieved, it's what Peter says here in verse 18 concerning the atonement of Christ, the, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that is essential, that's at the core of Christianity. We need Jesus to be more than our champion. We need Jesus to make full atonement for our sin. We need his blood for our ransom. And we get that summarized right here in the first part of verse 18. The, the ESV, English Standard Version, Gospel Transformation Bible. If you're looking to pick up a new Bible, a study Bible to have on your shelf, I highly recommend the ESV Gospel Transformation Study Bible. It nails the, you know, hits the nail on the head when it says concerning verse 18 that the doctrine of the penal substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ is summarized right here in this verse. So, penal. Let's look at that first. Verse 18, Peter writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins. There was a penalty that had to be paid. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, that the wages of sin is death. Every sin deserves the death penalty. So there was a, a penalty that had to be paid. But the death of Christ was also substitutionary. Jesus died in our place. Again, look at verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus did not die because of any sin in him. He died because of every sin in each and every one of us. He died in our place. And then finally, atonement. Again, look back at verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. His death is the perfect and final sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of God, which is justly to be executed on sin, but in Christ is satisfied for all those who put their trust in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21, again, the Apostle Paul puts it this way, God made him to be sin, that is Jesus, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The penalty for sin has been paid in full by a substitute, Jesus Christ himself. His blood paid the ransom that sets us free. And it was blood that had to be shed only once. Once and for all. Once for sins, Peter says in verse 18. It was an unrepeatable sacrifice. Prior to Jesus, in the Old Testament, up to that very day, year after year, on the Day of Atonement, God's people would come together. Sacrifices for sin were offered. So much blood was shed of lambs and goats and the like. But they had to be repeated every year. Every year. They knew that they were going to have to come back the next year and offer these sacrifices yet again because they could not save. 
Every priest stood daily at his service, the author of Hebrews tells us, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 12 through 14, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, from the cross... Jesus' last word was tetelestai. It is finished. What we have in English, it is finished, just that one word, tetelestai. It's a word that means completed. Uh, builder in the first century might step back from his uh, work when done and say tetelestai. I was out of the office this past week doing a, a not inconsequential repair to my house. Uh, it was above my head, uh, literally and figuratively. Uh, my dad came in to help, uh, so I'd like to give thanks to my fathers, both heavenly and earthly, for helping me get this project done. And it was totally, would have been totally right to, to stand back on Thursday at 4 o'clock after working through the snow and the cold and say, Tetelestai! Of course, it would have been a little weird. You know, my dad... Knowing my dad, my dad would have looked at me and said, you know your mom dropped you at birth, right? <laughs> Tetelestai. Yeah. But it, it's true. It was completed. Tetelestai. A builder in the first century could look out and say, Tetelestai. Jesus from the cross. Tetelestai. It is completed. It is finished. What is completed? Well, that's hinted at by another way in which that word tetelestai can be translated, and that's paid in full. Excavations of marketplaces from the first century unearthed bills of sale that had stamped across them tetelestai, paid in full. As Jesus bowed his head, he shouted if Mark's translation, if, if Mark's account of this lines up with, with what we're seeing in the other gospel accounts, he didn't just kind of, you know, Jesus didn't just didn't kind of silently whisper, but actually shouted tetelestai. It is finished. So two questions to ask in light of this unrepeatable sacrifice. First question of my fellow Christians. God is satisfied with the finished work of Jesus Christ. Are you? Are you? Or are you still trying to pay a debt that's already been paid in full? You're trying to pay that debt by nurturing feelings of guilt and shame? I deserve this or I deserve worse. You're trying to pay that debt through your good works, hoping that, that somehow this, this, this feeling of a, of a guilt that weighs, tips the scales in one direction, maybe by your good works, you can tip the scales in the other direction. That's a less die, brothers and sisters. It's been paid. A hymn writer wrote, Cast all your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him, in him alone, gloriously complete. Why? Tetelestai. It's finished. And my second question is for you if you're not a Christian. Will, will you put your faith in Christ? Believing that in him there is forgiveness for all your sin and rest from all your striving. It's reported that Buddha's last words were strive without ceasing. 
Jesus' last word from the cross, tetelestai, essentially means I've done all the striving. Put your hope in me. The death of Jesus Christ is an unrepeatable sacrifice. His death makes full atonement for sin. That's the first thing that we're going to look at. Second simple truth that we get from this passage, the death of Jesus Christ achieved a victory. It achieved a victory. Now, it's, again, we're into the hard part of this text. And the first thing to do when you come to a passage like this is not freak out. I, seriously, I, I, you come to a passage like this and you can get tempted into thinking, I've, like, I've got to unlock this. If I can just figure out what this is saying, it'll keep me from missing something that must be essential to the Christian faith. Otherwise, it wouldn't be so hard to obtain. We, we approach the Bible the way, you know, Nicolas Cage acted in uh, that, that movie. I'm drawing a blank on the name now. National Treasure. There we go. Remember that movie, National Treasure? You know, we, we treat the Bible as if there's these these codes and these mysteries and these riddles and these, you know, perilous passages that we need to go through in order to get to some truth. That's not the case when it comes to the hard parts of Scripture. Again, they're there, they're good, they're suitable and useful for building us up, but we need to remember something that Alistair Begg said when it comes to Scripture. The main thing is the plain thing. And the plain thing is the main thing. It's a, it's a really a nice, simple, and plain way of describing something that our confession, the Westminster Confession of Faith, says concerning the clarity of Scripture that can be boiled down to not all Scripture is clear unto all, but that which is necessary to know is plain. It's able to be discerned by those through due and necessary means. In other words, the main thing is the plain thing. And the plain thing is the main thing. So, what is the plain thing in this passage? And I think you see it in verse 18 that we just read, and then in verse 22. So let's look at those two passages together before we wrestle with what's in the middle. Verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Now jump down to verse 22. And you could say, and who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. That's, that's the main thing. Jesus wins. Jesus died as a substitute in your place. He rose victorious. He's ascended into heaven. And he's ruler over all. Jesus wins. That's the main thing. And we discern it from the plain thing in verse 18 and verse 22. So what about the not so plain thing in 19 through 21? There are three main views to how to handle this section of scripture. All have uh, some merit and none are without difficulty. And so I'm going to share the one I hold. I'm going to tell you all of its merits and none of its difficulties. <laughs> I'm kidding. I mean, I'm kind of kidding. I'm actually not kidding all that much. Uh, I, I will say that, you know, this. Uh, this, this view that I'm going to unpack, I hold with a very open hand. You know, recognizing that people a lot smarter than me have landed in the other two views. And also very thankful that my standing with God, my ability to know the gospel, 
My, my ability by God's grace to know the love that surpasses all understanding does not in any way hinge on getting this portion of this text right, and it doesn't for you either. So when you come to passages like this, have fun with them, wrestle with them, pull out commentaries and Bible dictionaries, but keep in mind there's not some mystery here that needs to be unlocked or you'll miss it, it being the gospel. All right, so the view I'm going to share I, I think is the one that makes the most sense. I hold it with an open hand, and so I encourage you to do the same, but also to do your own study. All right, what is the view that I hold? The view that I hold is that Peter is using an Old Testament event to illustrate his point that by his death and resurrection, Jesus Christ triumphed over death and hell and is ruler over all. Say it again. Peter is using an Old Testament event, namely the flood, to illustrate his point that by his death and resurrection, Jesus Christ triumphed over death and hell and is ruler over all. So let's look at verse 18 and let's look at end of verse 18 and into verse 19 and what follows. So then in verse 18, at the end, the part that we didn't talk about in the first point, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. And first I want to say there, that flesh there and, and spirit does not mean how we tend to think of it. Body, material body, and soul, kind of this internal essence or spirit of who we are. That's not what Peter is referring to here. Instead, it refers to what you could say is the life of this age and the life of the age to come. So Peter, I'm sorry, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 42 to 44 writes this, So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Which is just another way of saying a resurrected body that is fit for the life of heaven. That is fit for the life of the new age. And so when Peter is referring to is Christ after his resurrection. Risen bodily in the Spirit, animated by the Holy Spirit, fit for the life of heaven, no longer having a body that is corruptible because of death. So whatever is happening in verse 19 and following is happening after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the view I'm going with. Verse 19, let's take a look at that verse real quick. Verse 19, let's take a look at, at a few key words. Verse 19 says, "...in which he went." The word went does not mean went down. You know, we read what follows next and we automatically go there. It's not saying that Jesus went down anywhere as we tend to think about, for instance, going down into Hades or hell. It just says went. The word proclaimed, he went and proclaimed, is not the word evangelized. He didn't go and share the gospel with people. He proclaimed something. He announced something. Moving on then to, in verse 19, proclaimed to the spirits. That word spirits is used everywhere in the New Testament to refer to non-human spiritual beings. And so, angels, demons, these aren't the spirits or souls of dead people that Jesus is speaking to. And then the word prison is never used to describe hell or to describe the place where uh, dead people go. It is used to describe the place for Satan and other fallen angels. 
So, putting it all together, I think a simple truth. What is Jesus doing here? The resurrected, ascended Jesus went before the fallen angels in their place of punishment and announced his own triumph. He announced his victory. I won. I won. Now, it didn't even get into 21 and 20 and what was going on with Noah and all that kind of stuff, and it's just not time. But I do think the simple truth that's being conveyed here is simply this. Jesus wins. It's fitting that we've come to this passage on Palm Sunday. On Palm Sunday, you know, the Jews had, it was the time of the Passover, They've laid down these palm branches. They know that Jesus is entering the city. The palm branches, you've heard this before from me and probably elsewhere, the palm branches were actually symbols of the insurrection. It was a clue that what the Jewish people who were inviting Jesus, celebrating his entry, were anticipating was that he would be a conquering king. He would lead the insurrection that would finally drive the Romans out of Jerusalem and restore the kingdom to Israel. So Jesus came riding a donkey, symbolizing peace. And Jesus came to win a battle, but it was not the battle that they anticipated. In Luke chapter 9, verse 51, I love this passage. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus knew why he was going to Jerusalem. He knew when he entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday that he was entering to win a battle, not over the Romans or any other earthly ruler, but over sin and death itself. He knew why he was entering Jerusalem. He could say, I know why I'm here, I know what it will cost, and I know it, I will win. John chapter 11, when Jesus says to Mary, I am the resurrection and the life, he, could, he knew I'm going to win. Tetelestai from the cross was a victory cry. I win. Something else happened from the cross. After Jesus pronounced that word, said that word tetelestai, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When he died, not at his resurrection, everything that that curtain Indicated everything that that curtain represented, separation between God and his holiness and us and our sin, inaccessibility except through these repeated sacrifices year after year, day after day, eliminated. Torn in two from top to bottom, meaning this is God's action, God's accomplishment, not ours. The death of Jesus Christ, there was a victory that was won. And thankfully, that main thing is the plain thing here in this passage before us. The death of Christ was an unrepeatable sacrifice that achieved a victory. And now we move into our third point that brings comfort for Christians when they suffer. Now, now we can get into these confusing verses about baptism and, and the ark and the water and wrestle with those just a little bit and ask, what's the What's the plain thing here? What's the main thing that Peter is saying in this passage? And I think what he's telling us are two things about baptism. First of all, that baptism corresponds to the water of judgment. 
And second, that baptism represents salvation through judgment. Baptism corresponds to the water of judgment. The comparison is between the flood and baptism. Just as Noah and his family were saved through the waters of judgment, God's judgment, Christians are saved through the waters of God's judgment. Jesus, in his earthly ministry, said this in Matthew 24, 37 to 39. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and given in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So there's this... There's this uh, comparison that's being made, this correspondence between the water of baptism and the water of judgment through which Christians are saved, the salvation to which baptism uh, is represented. Both the flood and baptism portray salvation through judgment. The God who delivered Noah and his family will also deliver you if your trust is in the risen and ascended victorious Christ. So let's take a look real quick at these verses. Picking up in verse 20, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And so there's the sense in which what Peter is saying here is as you look to the victory won by Christ, a victory that was achieved as he passed through the waters of God's judgment, verse 18, as he paid the penalty for sin, satisfying the wrath of God once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, for all who look to him in faith. You too will be saved through the waters of God's judgment. I think there's an application here for us at, at two levels. The first is just that reality. There is this flood of judgment that is coming. Jesus pointed to it when he talked about his return. Just as in the days of Noah, the flood came unexpectedly. So too, at the return of the Son of Man, referring to himself, the flood of judgment will come without warning. And what Peter is saying to these Christians and what he's saying to us is, you have been delivered from that greater flood. And he's also saying that the same Jesus who was delivered through that flood is with you now in the midst of all your earthly floods, if you will. All the condemnation, all the suffering, all the, the trials that come in this life, Jesus would say with Isaiah in Isaiah 43, 2, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And so there's a comfort that we can have as Christians knowing that we have escaped that greater flood, the flood of God's judgment, and that even now Jesus Christ is with us as we go through the floods of this life. 
with all the insults and the condemnations and the accusations that are hurled toward us and with all the insults and the accusations and the condemnations that arise within us. In all those things, Christ says, I have, I'm with you. When those waters seem to be rising up to your neck, I am, I'm with you. And that greater judgment, that greater flood in me, you've already been delivered through. So coming back to verse 13, who is there to harm you <clears throat> if you are zealous for what is good? Anyone and everyone. Your boss, your teachers at school, your coworkers, your friends, your government, your family, any and all can bring a flood of insult and injustice down on you. But no one can do anything of ultimate harm to you. No one. Your inheritance is kept in heaven for you and you for it. The death of Jesus Christ makes all the difference. It makes all the difference. By it, he made a once and for all sacrifice for sin. Avail yourself of it. By his death, he achieved a great victory, a victory verified by his resurrection. Put your hope in it. And by his death, he passed through the flood of God's judgment in your place so that you will never have to. And even now, by his spirit is with you as the waters raise high in this world. Find your comfort in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do, we do thank you for this portion of your word. And we know that we've just scratched the surface of it. And, and we know there's a good probability that the difficult sections we didn't get quite right. But we are so thankful that the plain things are the main things. And that the main things are the plain things. Or the things that you know that we need to know in order to know you are made clear. And so, Lord Jesus, help us to put our trust and our confidence entirely in you. Knowing that by your death, you made a payment once and for all for the sin of all who would put their hope in you. And that by your death, you achieved a victory that at the moment of your death, the curtain was torn in two, such that you, Lord Jesus, risen and ascended, could go before powers greater than we can imagine that are still bound and announce your victory. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for delivering us from that great flood of judgment and through the great floods of condemnation and scorn that would be heaped upon us even now. We give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.